Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and we have a special episode for you today. Uh, this is a live recording from C2E2, the Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo. We were just there a couple of weeks ago. We presented this uh, wonderful talk where we talked about the, uh, uh, the the Columbian Exposition there in Chicago. We talked about the uh, uh, the origins of the Ferris Wheel, the Parliament of World Religions, and, of course, the H.H. H. Holmes Murder House. Now, just a word of warning, the audio is a little crisp here because this is a live recording, uh, but the, the episode is great, the discussion is wonderful, so we definitely wanted to share it with you, but if it's not your cup of tea, don't fret, the next episode will be back to uh, the uh, studio recording uh, process as usual. usual. Alright, so without further ado, let's uh, go to the live show. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are the hosts of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a podcast about science, uh, culture, the human mind, and the weirdness of reality. So I want to start off with a question. How many people here are from out of town, not from Chicago? Okay, so we got a good amount of people. All right. It's like maybe half. We're going to keep you in mind for later. This is going to be important because we're going to be talking about Chicago's hotel past. Well, uh, when we're honored to be here at C2E2, and they, uh, they asked us, they said, hey, maybe you could put something together that's a little bit Chicago-themed. So we thought about it, and uh, we, you know, we decided, well, okay, Chicago World Fair. That's going to that's gonna be what we want to focus in on here. And uh, we decided that to, to really dive into this topic, though, we need to take a paleo-futurist journey into the past of this city. Right, so I guess we need to start by thinking about Chicago as a city. Um, and I want to put forward that the history of American population growth as this country has increased in numbers over the centuries is a history of urbanization. Um, and that rapidly accelerated in the 1800s. For example, in 1840, the U.S. population was about 17 million people. About 89% of those people at that time were rural, living out in the country, on farms, not in cities. Only about 10% were living in cities. Just about 50 years later, in uh, 1890, the U.S. population, 63 million, and by then, 35% of Americans are living in cities. So over the course of the century, we see a rapid uptick in the way people are are moving in to crowd into dense quarters and come to where a lot of the new jobs are, the new jobs made available by technology and manufacturing and by transportation like steam power. Uh, but Chicago is a particularly crucial part of this urbanization story. I want to go back to those years, 1840 and 1890. 1840, anybody want to guess what the population of Chicago was? Uh, 10,000 people. Well, let, the, let the people guess. Shout them out. Let the people speak. <laughs> 1.5 million we've heard. It was 4,500. Chicago in 1840 uh, had 4,500 people in it. Wrigley Field has a seating capacity of about 41,000, so it could fit about nine 1840 Chicagos in it. Or to give you to give you like a, a context that's here and now. Right now at C2E2, there's between 20 and 40,000 people in this building. 
So we've got 1840 Chicago beat. Uh, by 1880, population of Chicago is up to 500,000. By 1890, it's up to 1 million. And you have to imagine what it does to a place when the population and the population density increases that rapidly. Uh, but uh, by 1890, Chicago had become the second biggest city in America, finally beating out Philadelphia, uh, but still behind New York. And by God, Chicago wanted to be number one. <laughs> Those of you from Chicago, do you, do you have New York hatred? Do you have New York? Yeah. 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 Right. Like, do you hate I'm their from pizza? Boston. I'm or? with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I want to put forward that stepping into Chicago in the 1890s, if you were, say, a country farmer coming out of the rural areas and stepping into Chicago in the 1890s would have been kind of like walking into the city, uh, or if we were to walk into the city in Blade Runner. Uh, the, so p part of this population explosion in the 19th century was fueled by immigration from all over Europe. So you'd have Chicago flooded with people of diverse ethnic origins, um, and this this may be very alien to people who had you know never met people from all over Europe. Then also, you got to think about technology. I would say that Chicago at this time was a sort of technopunk hallucination, where you had this steam-powered transport hub uh, and, most importantly, a center of industrialized meat production. Yeah. So, so, so was it like Blade Runner in that you could buy like cloned animals on the street? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. You know, we were talking on the way over here. Another uh, aspect of it is is the sort of layers of the city. How you see this vertical depth in Blade Runner. This is more apparent in Chicago of today, but like with the L train and uh, and and the way when you're downtown, you, you you can almost feel like you're inside when you're outside. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's more prevalent here than just about any other city I can think of off the top of my head that I've I've been to. Yeah. Yeah, and and the the Blade Runner analogy I think is is especially apt when anytime we're looking back in time and we're trying to especially the last couple of centuries and trying to figure out what it was like uh, to live in in that day you you have to think of it almost in sci-fi terms because the only way to really get a handle on the fact that yeah this was the this was the bleeding edge this was yeah. this was uh, this was this was the modern age it, it was know? it was the bleeding edge literally in that it was covered in pig blood um, <laughs> because it was the city where hogs were slaughtered and processed but it was also covered in coal dust smog steam uh, and rapidly electrifying I mean this is a time when electricity is going from a sort of rarefied novelty to being dispersed all over urban areas and so uh, this is going to be a crucial part of the story we tell today about the World's Fair. But another thing is that eastern cities at the time would have looked back on Chicago in the 1890s as a sort of beefed-up backwater. Like, there, there was, uh, there was a, a, a very snooty attitude toward Chicago that's like, uh, looking at it like, like it was just pumped up like bane on technology and cash and and pig blood and all of that great stuff, but that it didn't really have the refined character and culture like, that like makes an American city great. Bane with a backpack full of pig blood just being injected <laughs> into his body. That sounds yeah. great. This is not the Bane you can't understand. Yeah. It's the uh, Chicago. It's the old Take Bane with the city. Yeah, getting pumped up. Uh, so 
rapid urbanization had factors that people found both alluring and repulsive, and I want to explore one of the people who found it repulsive. So in 1893, the French writer and publisher Octave Uzan wrote a letter to the periodical The American Architect and Building News, and he was reporting on a recent visit he made to Chicago. He'd actually been visiting the 1893 World's Fair that we're going to be talking about. And in talking about uh, Chicago, he, he was writing about the, the prospect of leaving the city, And this is an abridged quote. Built upon a mud flat on the shore of a somber, verdureless lake, it was the noisy, furious, impulsive, brutal life which there maneuvers its battalions. A life without soul and ideal. Business, business, business. Is this not the real burden of the Raven in Poe's poem? I don't believe it is. I think I think, uh, I think, it's I a think very, Poe would probably think, think yeah, on that one for a, a second. Weird read of the, the poem. Business. <laughs> But, but what then, does Poe know? He died in the street. Yeah. <laughs> Baltimore, though. Ba- Baltimore is a city with character. It's got old school class, or at least they thought. Uh, but continuing his quote, he's on the train leaving Chicago, and he's very happy to be leaving. He says, the next morning, raising the shade of my compartment, I saw behind the glass a smiling country unroll itself. Before nature thus peaceful, in sight of these light mists, these mosses, these flowers opening in the sun, I forgot the frightful nightmare of the departure from Chicago, that Gordian city, so excessive, so satanic. So, so yeah, this was like Hellraiser for this guy from France, yeah, basically. I mean, Chicago was totally. like, yeah, Pinhead I, lived here. I really like Gordian city. I don't, I don't, I, I think you guys should embrace that here in the same way that a lot of, uh, take it back. A lot of people from Atlanta embrace Terminus as is yeah. uh, our alternate uh, title. I think that's city. only after The Walking Dead, but yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if that actually works so that well because to be Gordian, I would think it would be hard to navigate. So far, I've found Chicago much easier to navigate than most cities. Right, y'all? This is smart. Y'all have a grid. You guys have great public yeah. transportation. We're from Atlanta. Try <laughs> to find your way around in Atlanta. Roads make no haven't fallen apart yet. Well, they're all old cattle trails that got converted. Anyway. <laughs> I'm um, just saying it's a great name. I'm yeah. not, not saying you're going to get lost. Okay. We've we got to make it to the fair. Okay. So as, as cities gather in, urbanization, cities gather in, they tend to grow up because where are you going to fit all those people, right? You've got to expand into three dimensions. So uh, so driving into three dimensions, the, the urbanization trend was also tightly linked to the development of high-rise architecture and uh, and this new class of architects to design these tall buildings that would pack in all these people in the new cities. And this new class of architects included the people Daniel Burnham and John Wellborn Root, who were also responsible for buildings like the 21-story Masonic Temple building in Chicago. Pretty good name. Satanic. Yeah. And the Rookery building, which is still standing today, I went and saw it yesterday. Robert, you saw it. Christian, did you see it yet? I haven't been yet. I'm going to try to go tomorrow. Well, it's if you're in town, it's beautiful. You should go in there, take a look at the lobby. It's got this non-representative uh, artistry on the architecture inside the lobby that makes it look kind of like a mosque. It's very beautiful. I love it. Um, but anyway, so they were designing these new types of buildings, buildings that went up into the sky, stuff people had never seen before. And being a high-rise architect in Chicago was a difficult job because I don't know if anybody here has ever tried to build in Chicago. Apparently, the soil here is just junk. It's uh, it's like a mud flat that sinks down, and when you try to build, your buildings will sink into the mud and shift. So they had to come up with new technologies to build new types of foundations that would anchor these buildings 
building so they didn't start leaning over halfway through construction. Um, so this really is, it, we don't often think about buildings as uh, technological organisms today, but they really are. These high-rise buildings were a monstrous achievement of science and technology. So we get to 1890. We're getting to the fair. The U.S. Congress votes to host a World's Fair in 1893. It's in celebration of, does anybody want to guess? Columbus, that yeah. guy. Wow. Yeah. Because it's the Columbian Exposition. Right, yeah. So uh, it would be the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the New World. And who's going to get to host the city? There's a big competition between cities. You have New York wants to host it. All these cities want to host it. I think St. Louis did. All the Columbias. But wouldn't you know it, Chicago, this satanic buildy, b- buildy, this satanic city built on quicksand gets to host the fair. And that, I, I mean, that's pretty cool to imagine like, oh, this city all these people thought was just a hellhole. Um, and now we're going to bring the entire world there and show them what's up, show them what America can do. Uh, so this is probably a good place to acknowledge one of our key resources in researching this episode, which is Eric Larson's excellent 2003 nonfiction book, you guys The Devil this? in the White City. So yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, if you haven't read it, that is a great book, absolutely fabulous, and one, one of my key resources in working in this. And one of the points Eric Larson makes is that it's hard for us today, even, I, we got some cheers earlier for hating New York, but... Um, <laughs> It's hard for us today to understand the depth of location-based pride in the 1890s. The people, when the reputation of their city was on the line, they took that so seriously. And so, fair is coming. you got to make it good. So, there was an absolutely frantic design and construction phase, and the fair opened finally in May 1st, uh, 1893. It began with a horrible flop because it coincided almost perfectly with the panic of 1893. So imagine starting this World's Fair where you want to bring everybody and show what your country can do, and right then you get a depression. It's like if you were at C2E2 in 2008, and the economy had just completely plummeted, and you couldn't buy cosplay costumes. (laughs) Right? Or worse. Maybe worse. <laughs> so it, in a lot of ways, you could look at the fair as kind of a financial failure. But in other ways, I think we should look at it as one of the coolest and most important events in American history. It was this romantic, ecumenical, insane science fiction assemblage of the spirit of the American city, especially the soul of Chicago and everything that Chicago embodied, everything angelic, everything satanic. And, I mean, how cool is this? They built a city within a city. They built a city within a city on the shore of Lake Michigan, and it lived for a year. It was throughout the summer season while people came to the fair, and then it disappeared into history. You know, and we've been talking about this amongst ourselves as we've been researching it. Like, it, I'm, I'm wondering, those of you who are from Illinois, did you learn about the White City as you were growing up? Was this like a point of pride? From the various places that we grew up in, I, I didn't hear about it until I was, until I read Devil in the White City, and I was yeah. like, this is this amazing thing in American history that seems to get glossed over. Yeah, I feel like you tend to learn more about your own state's world fair. Right, yeah. <laughs> Than you do about the, about uh, you know everyone wants to celebrate their own party, not the great party that. <laughs> yeah, for me it was the tea party, but the old one. <laughs> 
Uh, for us growing up in Tennessee, what did we learn? More like the many versatile uses of corn chips. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and of course in Knoxville we had the the big golden uh, globe with the wigs in it. Yeah, with yeah. the the wig tower. Parthenon. Was that real or was that just the Simpsons? The, what the, the big the, globe? The wig tower. Oh, there are no wigs in it. The, oh. the, the building's there. You have ruined reality for me. <laughs> Okay, so each of the three of us is going to focus on one major aspect of the fair that we want to talk about that we found especially interesting. But before we get into that, we just wanted to give you a little bit of the texture of the fair so you could know what all's going on there. There's absolutely no way we could explore everything that was happening at the fair because it was, uh, I mean, it was the, the whole world in a, in a, in a single place. Uh, it would be impossible. But to try to give you a quick picture, one of the first things you'd notice if you walk into the fair is probably the architecture. Now, they had landscape architecture, right, from Frederick Law Olmsted, the guy who designed Central Park in New York. Yeah. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of times if you go to a city and you find a beautiful park with greens and nice sloping contours and uh, tastefully selected plants and all that, you look it up, designed by Olmsted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he, he, our, our big park back in our hometown of Atlanta, Piedmont Park, is an Olmsted park. It's, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It is pretty cool. It's yeah. best when it's full of dogs. Exactly. And they yeah. get away from their owners. Yes. And they come and get your hot dog. <sighs> I'm not speaking from experience. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it, but also building architecture. So um, the person who is selected to head up the fair, to be the czar of the fair and control all of its uh, machinations, was Daniel Burnham, the architect I mentioned earlier, who was responsible for the rookery. Uh, and he also wanted the fair to be about building architecture. And this is what led to the White City. We had the image up earlier; it seems to be gone now. Uh, but this was uh, this was a city built on the shore. It was in Jackson Park on the shore of Lake Michigan. And he invited architects from all over the place, all the best architects in the country, to come together and build a city in the neoclassical architecture style. So if you're trying to picture that, think uh, think like ancient Rome. Think columns and cornices and sort of like the design you would find in the U.S. Capitol uh, and, and things like that. It suggests stateliness, power, pride, empire, uh, and other various beautiful and evil things all wrapped into one. But because they were on a really tight schedule, they'd been thinking about what are we going to paint all the buildings they just went all white just everything white it just painted all white basically it's like they put the primer yeah, on it's like they they got their miniatures ready for the big game and uh, <laughs> they had time for the primer but not to really paint the army but hey you know you gotta that's got a, a good, game you got a game that's a good way to think about the white city like a big like game of warhammer yeah big big yeah. warhammer I guess it would be 40,000. It's yeah. the future. The yeah. future is the, is the emphasis here. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, so you've got the White City, and you're walking in there, and you try to imagine going to this on like a hot summer day with the sun beating down and all these white buildings and then the sun reflecting off the lake. It would be not only beautiful, but probably literally hurt your eyes. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, just all this all this light. But the then by so night... so bright, you got to wear shades, man. <laughs> Oh, man, I didn't like that. That was the slogan at my college graduation. No way. Yeah, really? They made us wear sunglasses. It was real silly. Anyways. Oh, wow. Embarrassing personal histories. We don't do that enough. 
Anyway, by night you would you would witness another one of the fair's marvels, which is electric lighting. Now, electric lighting was had already existed at this point, but it wasn't fully adopted everywhere, and so they, they had enormous amounts of electric light going on at this fair. More than 120,000 incandescent electric lamps, 7,000 arc lights. Uh, George Westinghouse, the guy who held the rights to Nikola Tesla's alternating current, was the one who got the contract to electrify the fair, and this actually played a big role in getting alternating current AC accepted as the new standard over Edison's DC. I'm sure y'all, we got fans of the current wars out here. Yeah, we have we have a couple episodes about that stuff. These guys in particular did a really great episode about the uh, the religious aspects of electricity. Yeah, yeah, two parter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you want to go check that out in our back catalog, what is it called? Early days of electricity. It's about how a lot of people used to think electricity was magic and holy and they wrote poems about it and then it got really boring around the same time they started electrocuting people in the electric chair yeah Uh, So the fair used three times as much electricity as the entire city of Chicago. This is definitely a technological revolution. Um, More random curiosities from the fair. I just want to mention a few real quick. The future of weaponry. The largest artillery gun ever built up to that time by the Fritz, uh, by the Fritz, by the German (laughs) gun. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he was the Fritz. He was Fritz Krupp, the German gun god uh, who made artillery weapons. So this was the biggest one ever. It weighed 127 tons. It was capable of shooting a one-ton shell. Uh, Krupp claimed up to a range of 16 miles, and uh, people nicknamed it Krupp's Baby or Krupp's Monster. And I think this is interesting because you get a kind of preview of some of the carnage that's going to come with the changing technological world in just, I guess, what, 25 years from then, once we get to World War I, the first really true uh, artillery campaign. So this is like the Moab of their time. The what? The Moab. The Moab. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And then didn't they like? They, you told me this. They they would fire the shells at targets here in <laughs> Chicago, right? So they could demonstrate its power. Thankfully, they did not try to fire the gun inside <laughs> the city. They had these destroyed targets. It was almost like warnings. <laughs> they had these destroyed targets that be these sheets of 18-inch thick steel that are just blown to smithereens by the gun. Uh, they claimed the gun had done this. No, nobody really saw it happen, I guess. We have to assume it worked. Uh, but the fair had a hall of electricity. Apparently there was just an ungodly noise inside. Can you imagine all this 19th century electricity uh, displays? So Nikola Tesla had all these devices there to show off how electricity worked. Induction motors. Um, you know, Can you imagine the whirring and the clattering and the static discharge crash like there's lightning and screaming all in the building. I'm sure it would have been cool. <laughs> Sounds like here, kind of. Uh, also, about the, the Hall of Electricity, they had a Benjamin Franklin statue in Michelangeloid glory, except he was clothed. <sighs> Boring. What was he wearing? Was he fully clothed? Yeah, was it later hose in? Standard <laughs> Benjamin Franklin crap. I don't know. You he know, didn't have a shirt on. put him in that on, coat but, uh, uh, with the spectacles. I think he had his spectacles on. But to go for the real thing, they should have had him nude like the David with the arm back. Holding a kite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
one last thing I want to mention is the cultural displays of the fair. So the fair had a midway with these international cultural displays from all over the world. For example, the Street of Cairo, where they would recreate the architecture of Egypt. So they had like a mosque. They had a mosque rebuilt there. Uh, they had the a replica of the Luxor Temple, and supposedly one of the obelisks in their replica Luxor Temple, uh, I have read, had Grover Cleveland's name, President Grover Cleveland, inscribed in hieroglyphics. Who knows if that's true? <laughs> How would you even spell that? Did they have, anyway? Um, but then also uh, the, to to pair with the futurist bend of the fair, Westinghouse put together a second Egyptian temple, except this one was an electrical temple with electrified lights, almost just to mess with people. Like, oh, you saw that other Egyptian temple, huh? How about one that'll shock you? <laughs> and they had mummies there. They, oh, yeah, wax mummies. They had replicas of mummies. Uh, wouldn't it be great if they had real mummies? Or just electric, electric wax electric mummies. Electric mummies, yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's a good. That's a good band name. Yeah. You can imagine you can Tesla and Westinghouse would like come up with a machine. Like, My machine makes sixteen mummies an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but one more thing about the street of Cairo was the street itself. And this was actually the more popular aspect of the, uh, the international things in the Midway. You would have things like donkey rides for the kids. People actually came from places all around the world to show off what their culture looked like. Now, we don't know always how accurate it would have looked as depicted at the fair. But they'd have you know a street that's supposed to be filled with people from Cairo showing what they do in Cairo, having uh, donkey and camel rides for the kids and coffee and Egyptian exotic dancers for mom and dad. And so I this is like the Epcot center of its time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard not to think of, of Disney World yeah. when, 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 when thinking. How much yeah. cosplay was going on there? That is a good question. I yeah. don't know if that had caught on yet, but like, I so you'd have people that. from Chicago or maybe from rural Illinois showing up dressing as the street of Cairo. Yeah, 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 yeah. or mummies. As, yeah. Uh, so I... When I think about this, I think about like the, the cultural displays coming together. I think it's confounding because I sense different, different spirits in the interest people had in this. In one sense, I sense a kind of crass Orientalism, right? Like Americans just wanting to look at what those backward foreigners are like, a kind of puerile curiosity, maybe also hoping there might be some nudity and seeing some foreign dances. But on the other hand, I also sense there, there's a layer of genuine, admirable interest in other cultures. And that's a cool thing to see, too, in the 1890s, and I think should help transition to what you wanted to talk about. Right, Robert? Yeah, it's this really interesting thing that we're seeing during the World's Fair, this like idea of embracing diversity. And so... That included religion, right? Yeah. So this was the uh, the auxiliary uh, was in charge of all cultural matters uh, because you know this is not only a, a celebration of, of what we are, you know, and what what where culture was at the time, but it was about history. Where how far had we come? And uh, and there was this really cool thing that was going on there the the uh, Parliament of World Religions. Now, I know what, what you're going to ask. You, you want to know, is it... Is it the G-Funk of World Religions? <laughs> how funky is it? No, it's not... Not, exa- not I, I wanted to know if, if it's a literal parliament. Like, they bring God in for question time, <laughs> and they... Uh, can you filibuster the Presbyterians? They wear wigs. No, th- Maybe that's where all those wigs from Tennessee went. <laughs> yeah, it could be. The, basically, the idea of the Parliament of World Religions was, let's, let's send out these invites to all of these, these major religions. And yes, most of them are going to end up being uh, English-speaking Protestant religions, but... Let's have everybody come in. We'll celebrate what we have in common. We'll give everyone a chance to not so much to to boast about their religion and push down 
other faiths, but rather to, to say, hey, this is what we have worked out. This is how we bring out the best in people, and this is how we can address uh, the concerns of our world. Right, because as Joe was mentioning, you had all these pressures converging on not just Chicago, but America at the time, right? Industrialism, immigration, people were freaked out. Yeah. yeah. And it's, with all of this, really every aspect of the, of the, um, of the fair here, you, I mean, you, you, you look at it and you know what's going to happen in the 20th century. You know about uh, the revolutions, the civil wars, the nationalism, the, the world wars, uh, the Great Depression, the Holocaust, nuclear weapons, the, the whole nine yards. So All the fun stuff. Yeah, Thanks, the- Robert. Everybody's... <laughs> but the thing, but at the same, at the same time, you know, we we did have a lot of really positive stuff to come out of the 20th century. I mean, civil rights movements, uh, triumph of uh, nonviolent protests, human space exploration, and to Blade a Runner. large extent, I'm sorry, Blade Runner. Oh, well, of course we have right. Blade Runner. Um, but to to a, to a large extent, there was a lot of effort that was made to to understand other religions, to promote religious tolerance. And we can really look back to the uh, Parliament of World Religions in 1893 and see sort of a beginning there. So uh, you could say that in the 1890s, this was something that was also very needed, right? Yes. So what I'm going to explain, describe now, and I'm very much uh, uh, jumping off of what Joe said earlier, a lot of this is going to sound hauntingly familiar, okay? So we have to go back to the, the climate of 1890s America. And uh, an author by the name of Catherine Marshall, she wrote a wonderful piece in the Interfaith Observer in 2015, and she, she did a great job driving home some of the, the, the key areas where uh, religious and, and cultural tensions were, were brewing. So... A flood of mostly poor immigrants, many of them Jewish refugees from Russia, were entering the country, and as a result, you had uh, this surge in xenophobic and nativist attitudes. And this inspired uh, the founding of the Immigration Restriction League, as well as anti-immigrant laws such as 1882's China Exclusion Act. And on top of that, you had changes in immigration policies that that favored educated northern European immigrants over pretty much everybody else. Yeah, so this sounds eerily familiar. Yeah, it, it, but again, you have to you have to look at this this world. You see what's going on, and on top, and in, in in addition to all the immigration, you have these globalizing elements that were taking place. Right? You yeah. had you had this surge in technological um, uh, achievement. So. This is where, again, the, the, the World um, Religious Parliament comes into play. One of the key individuals here, and, uh, and I'm going to go into detail about him because it's kind of interesting to, to, to look at him as, as, as one of the roots of it here. Um, his name was uh, Charles Carroll Bonney. And he was a Chicago lawyer, a judge, a teacher, uh, president of the World's Congress Auxiliary. Uh, they're the ones who did a lot of the, the cultural and religious stuff uh, for, for this uh, celebration. And he was charged uh, with highlighting the intellectual and moral progress of the civilized world. And uh, he was also a member of a new religious movement known as the Swedenborgian Church. Oh, boy. How, how many of you have heard of the Swedenborgian Church before? Okay, I see like four hands. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's a fifth. We, okay. we may even have some Swedenborgians uh, in the audience. Maybe. Yeah. Any Swedenborgians? 
Well, no. okay, maybe not. But oh, we one, got one. one okay. maybe. All right. Well, all right. Well, hope this is you're, wish, you're a little wishy-washy. This is though. named after a person, right? Yeah, it yeah. Is. This is named after uh, an, an individual by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg. Um, what a name! Yes. Okay, hold on a second. This guy is Swedish. Yeah. And his name is Swedenborg. So that'd be like if my name was Christian America Borg. Yeah. <laughs> you should consider it. I mean, I think that's the one heck of a name. Yeah, maybe I'll change it for the show. That's the name of a project deep under the ground in the Pentagon. <laughs> Christian America Borg. <laughs> It's an electric mummy. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little more about the Swedenborgians in just a second. But first, new religious movements. Uh, what is a new religious movement? Robert, be straight with me. Is it the same thing as a cult? All right. I, this is the way I look Listen at to it. this pause. Well, okay, this is the way I like to look at it. You have cults over here, and there's a certain, uh, a certain list of criteria for cults. And you have uh, new religious movements over here, and there are certain criteria. Sometimes these two things overlap. I think you can sort of look at like like any young religion is kind of like a like a teenager, you know? <laughs> they're they're just figuring out who they are and uh maybe they're a little impulsive. They have a lot of growing up to do. Uh and that will come in time if they survive. Right. And they don't always get invited to world parliaments. Right. right. Like many yeah. teenagers, I know. <laughs> So uh, another way to look at, at, uh, at new religious movements, very much in keeping with the fair, is that these are, they're almost always rooted in ancient religious traditions. But it's, if someone has taken those religious traditions, uh, or rather picked up the shards of them, and reformed them into something that appeals to, to modern believers, that, that, that tackles modern problems. It's, been, it's something that's taken the old and remade it into something new. This is the principle of syncretism. In fact, this is how we get, I would say, most religions that exist in the world you can see as being sort of built out of the pieces of older religions. Yeah, if you've ever listened to our podcast before, this actually comes up quite mm -hmm. a bit, and sometimes we refer to it as the lunch tray method of religion, <laughs> where you kind yeah. of just pick different versions that will be your meal. Yeah, they're generally, at this time, you're talking about someone else saying, all right, here is your new meal. I've, I've picked off what you don't need anymore. I've decided that we're just having corn, that sort of thing. <laughs> but it's corn with a K. <laughs> what? Or it's corn with a Q-U-O-R-N. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting to talk about religion while we're, we're here at C2E2. Because we, we have past episodes where we talk about hyper-real religions. Oh, yeah. The idea that a lot, in, in, in many cases, fandoms and various sci-fi properties, fantasy properties, like these can take on the, the power of religion for modern people. And we have some examples where people tend to take that to a literal extent, such as Jediism. Any Jediists in here or Jedis? There, right. there are people Look who literally it. claim consider to have Jedi as their religion. Yeah, or the, or the one we were wondering about was Pastafarianism. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, if there were any of those folks here. Well, think about all of this. That's it, a it, legit it, religion it in is. Europe. Yeah, in some places. So as we continue, yeah, if, if you're having trouble connecting to the religious idea, just replace the religion with, with whatever your favorite uh, fandom happens to be. Now, <laughs> as far as real um, new religious movements, just a, two quick examples, because these all come into play. There, you had uh, 1830, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's a perfect example of not only uh, a new religious movement, but a frontier new religious movement, one that was, was very much uh, coming out of a, a place and time and the needs of the people there. And deeply American in character. Yeah. And then you also had the Christian Scientist, uh, 1879. 
They were uh, both founded prior to the uh, Columbian Exposition, but uh, only one of them was invited. Uh, and we'll, I'll touch that base uh, on that in a minute. You're not going to tell us which one? Well, okay, I'll go ahead and... No, 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 it's in suspense, come on. All right, you can try and figure it out. But uh, (laughs) more recent examples, of course, would be like Rastafari, Scientology, and Falun Gong. Okay. So we've, we've established that. Swedenborgianism, uh, or rather the new church, Swedenborgian church, this was basically the idea that the second coming had occurred and we're all living in the new Jerusalem and, uh, and we need to focus on making the world a better place. That's oh, the, okay. That's just a very brief uh, breakdown of that. Uh, <laughs> it's like later seasons of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was a pretty big deal. I mean, uh, Johnny Appleseed was a member of the new church. Right, right. Johnny Appleseed? Yeah, Johnny Appleseed, Helen Keller, William Blake, and there was one other who was Sheridan it? Oh, Robert Lefanu. Frost. Yeah. So, so they were cool with cider then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The American side are hard. But the, so wait, the this only is guy. the Swedenborgian Avengers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beep, 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 beep. One thing we didn't even say, but you've got to have in mind, thinking about the World's Fair in the 1890s. Behind everything, there is a rabid temperance movement that mm. wants influence on whatever you're doing. So anybody who wanted to have drinks going on or wherever, they were always fighting the temperance movement. All right. So. Back to this world, this Parliament of Rural Religions. How does it get rolling? Well, Bonnie appoints uh, first Presbyterian clergyman John Henry Barrows to administer this thing. He ends up writing about this a lot. There's a book that you can find uh, of his online at archive.org uh, where he just goes into exhaustive detail about the whole deal. But basically, they send out these invitations. He and uh, a bunch of 16 other people, they put together these uh, invitations, send them out, 3,000 copies of the preliminary address uh, to uh, religions around the world to participate. Uh, So not everybody was crazy about it. The Presbyterians didn't like it. The Church of England, European Roman Catholics, the Sultan of Turkey, uh, various American evangelicals disapproved. But a, a number of other people were really into the idea. Uh, now, not everybody got an invite. I don't want to make it sound like this was just super inclusive. Uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, were snubbed from the event, despite really, uh, they, they were really interested in attending, but they ended up not taking part. That is This is because of the controversy of polygamy at the time. Yeah, and it just, but it does just go to show that there was some favoritism. Like even, right. it's 1893, so even in the name of like bringing all these religions together, there's still some closed-mindedness about about some new religious movements, like the right kind of new religious movements, like uh, the Christian scientists are invited, but 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 not the Mormons. Sure, yeah. We're having a religion party. No Mormons allowed. All right. So the party takes place, and uh, it is—it's—it's it's quite a success. Uh, so, talk in terms of who attended. 152 out of 194 papers were English-speaking Christians, but you still saw 12 Buddhists, uh, 11 Jewish presenters, uh, eight Hindu, two Islamic, uh, two Zoroastrians, two Shinto, two Confucians, two Taoist, and uh, one Jainist. So that's a, a pretty good. Uh, Mountain. You also had a Christian scientist and a theosophist. That sounds like a pretty good representation to me. I mean, I, when, the more I hear about this, more, the more I wonder, like, would this be possible today? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the inaugural celebration began with an interfaith ceremony, uh, drawing in some 4,000 people. Uh, a re- reported 5,000 assembled uh, to hear a speech by Hindu monk uh, Swami Vivekananda, who's uh, widely regarded as being the guy who introduced Hinduism and yoga to the Western world. So if you did yoga today, yeah. thanks, yeah. Swami Vivekananda. We yeah. have, our hotel has yoga mats in the closet. It's all thanks to Swami Vivekananda. Yeah. It's awesome, and oh yeah, nineteen women spoke at the uh, at at, um, at the Congress as well, which I think was you know pretty good for the day. Yeah. So the Parliament didn't attempt to unify religion. They again they approached it more as a platform for everyone to to share their light, and yet there were those who managed to throw a few elbows into other religions to sort of talk here and there about uh, you know false religions. Uh, there was a few people in, in particular who kind of used battle royale Darwinist of, um, language to describe it as if this whole party was just one big battle, and at the end there can be only one. I like the yeah, it's like Highlander, but they're all wearing like Japanese schoolgirl outfits, yeah. <laughs> fighting over religion. Yeah, and uh, McLeod is a Presbyterian. Yeah, which yeah. one is uh, Clancy Brown with his leather jacket? Ooh, I don't know, Christian Scientist? Uh, I'm not sure. The Kurgan. Well, let's see, he's Church of England. Got it. <laughs> All right. So everyone comes together. They share stuff about the religion. Everyone's patting themselves on the back. But I know what you're, 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 you're asking yourselves. You're thinking ahead to the 20th century. You're thinking ahead to now. And you're saying, did any of this accomplish anything? Did any good come out of it? Uh, or is it just kind of like those, uh, you know, those kitchens of the future that you see footage of from the, the 50s and 60s, where you look back and you, know, you say, well, well, that's great, but we never had flying toasters. No one ever had a, had, had a refrigerator like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. They didn't have the internet of things yet. <laughs> but so wait, did this have a continuing influence or not? Well, it, it did, but I mean, part of it is that in the in the era to follow, uh, interfaith uh, cooperation was not a priority. You know, um, to, to you say might the least. say that. Yeah, there were a number of different interfaith um, groups that sprang up right after the parliament. Okay. Not all of them lasted. They weren't necessarily all that focused. After the Second World War, you saw more localized uh, focus on inter-religious uh, efforts. And uh, eventually you did, you did see some really major groups come out of this, such as uh, International Association for Religious Freedom in 1900, the World Council of Churches in 1948. You also had groups that were not expressly religious, but, uh, but did, you know, it did entail some, uh, some r- religious discussions, such as John D. Rockefeller III's Asia Society, founded in 1956. You also saw various re- religious groups becoming more open, at least to talking about other religions. Um, uh, the, the Catholic Church, for instance, following uh, the Second uh, Vatican Council in the 1960s. And I imagine, like anybody out there who grew up in a church, I mean, everybody's, if you grew up in a church, everybody's church upbringing is a little different, but you might be able to think back to some at least mild, mid-level you know, interfaith discussion that went on. What do you think Mel Gibson thinks about this? <laughs> I, I, Why would you go there? We, we should probably ask him <laughs> next time he's in the studio. Yeah, we'll, we'll have him on to talk about interfaith uh, communication. Go get the gringo. But a number of the, these, uh, these groups are still around, and the World Parliament uh, of Religions lives on. They, Wait, uh, what, what, what? Yeah, They're they still, still having are. this? They are. They, they reconvened uh, once more in 1993, so that's their, their centennial. Wow. Uh, right here in Chicago. And they still hold events every few years. Uh, ironically enough, the, the most recent U.S. meeting took place
States in Salt Lake City in 2015. So they had to invite the Mormons. Yeah. To that one. So there's some comeuppance there. The you know, choice. now yeah. we're hosting the party. Yeah. And uh, you know, you can suck it. I guess. <laughs> you know, with, with this kind of parliament coming together, fostering mutual understanding, it makes me think that the people who would be most likely to attend are the people who need it the least. You know, yeah, I guess like you're not going to get the Westboro Baptist Church to show up at the Parliament on World Religions, or if they do, they're yeah. they're going to be just making a ruckus. Well, I think it's it's kind of like any conference, right? You know, the the people who are super interested and motivated, or even like bound by career to it, those are the ones that show up. But hopefully, they get something, they bring it back, they bring back the spirit of the thing. And they share it with everyone else. I don't know. Maybe maybe everyone here plans to do the same. You're going to get just filled up with the spirit of your favorite fandom. You bring it home and you just inflict it on everyone. <laughs> That's the way I do That's it. why they make them peace bond, those swords. <laughs> hey, so, all right. Let's say I've attended the Parliament of World Religions, right? And I, I need to uh, walk outside for a smoke break. And you need a new god. Yeah. 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 And so I go outside and I look up and there's this huge huge, gigantic wheel in front of me. Do you start worshiping it? Is this yeah, what you're exactly. asking? Yeah, exactly. Is that my new god? Yes, of course you do, because uh, I want to talk about the Colossus of Chicago, as I would call it, or Chicago's Eiffel Tower. Uh, so in 1893, getting ready for the fair, Chicago had what we might call Paris envy. Um, and the Freudian centerpiece of Paris Envy is Eiffel Envy. Oh, boy. So the Eiffel Tower was created by the engineering company of Gustave Eiffel, and it was for a previous World's Fair, the Paris World's Fair in 1889. And uh, it, was, it was ridiculed by some people at the time. Said, What's this hideous, gigantic iron monstrosity? It's not in keeping with the surrounding architecture or whatever. But a lot of other people looked at that and they said, wow, that's really something. And a lot of architects look at looked at it and said, "Wow, that yeah, it's a it's a new kind of romantic modernism. It's grand, it's inspiring, and furthermore, it ties in with the technological change theme because it's visual evidence that France was claiming to have edged out the United States in iron and steel working, and the people of Chicago did not like that." I'm assuming all these architects were men. Well, actually, all the main architects leading the fair were men, but they did um, they did have a women's building oh. at the fair that was designed by a female architect. Um, but it probably wasn't very phallic, like the Eiffel Tower. I don't know the degree Hopefully. to which it was phallic. Yeah. Uh, all right, we need to measure. Yeah, we need like a scale of phallicism. <laughs> but but they were trying to out Eiffel the Eiffel Tower, so that's going to literally a lot of tower designs. Yeah. So Daniel Burnham, the the czar of the World's Fair, and his associates, they were obsessed with this. They were obsessed with finding an architectural centerpiece for the fair, something like a new Eiffel Tower. They wanted to literally, as you say, out Eiffel Eiffel. Um, and they got a bunch of proposals. They solicited from architects all over the place, give us ideas for what we could do. Uh, and these are all documented in Larson's book as well. So one of the proposals, uh, well, actually, first I should say, I think it, you, you can think about basically the proposals fall into two categories. There's boring and there's insane. <laughs> Eiffel himself, the guy who designed the Eiffel Tower, offered to design them a centerpiece. And Burnham was like, yeah, okay, let's see what you got. And Eiffel's like, here, 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 sit down, sit down. Another Eiffel Tower. <laughs> a little bit bigger than the first one. 
Burnham wasn't really into it. Uh, he was like, no, I think we need something weirder, more shocking, something that's fresh and new. So let's look in the fresh and new category. Uh, one proposal they got put forward by an inventor named J.B. McComber was a tower that would be 8,947 feet tall. For wow. reference, the tallest building in the world today, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, is 2,700 feet tall. <laughs> So, so several, totally in, this, in the 1890s. So there might have been varying levels of taking it seriously among the architects here. Uh, but yeah, so the top of this tower would serve as a station for elevated railways that would connect to major cities like New York and Boston. Uh, almost think of a 19th century hyperloop where when you're done at the fair, you take an elevator up to the top of this 9,000-foot tower, and then you ride downhill all the way back to Baltimore, wherever you came from. But it's like a, it's like a sled. Yeah. <laughs> I got another one. This one's pretty good. Uh, proposal put forward by a guy named C.F. Richel of Connecticut. It was a tower with three nested levels. So you might think of it kind of like a nested ziggurat. And it would have a base that's 100 feet tall, then a second tower nested within the first one, and then a third tower nested within the second, and then it would harness hydraulic power to slowly, over the course of several hours, extend the tower to full height and then shrink it back down. Can you picture oh this, by the way? So it just goes from tumescence to flaccidity. Yeah, exactly. to flaccidity. You know, uh, we uh, just recorded an episode for next week uh, about H.R. Giger, so every time I hear you talking about this, yeah. I can only imagine it as designed by Giger. Now, that would have been cool. Uh, but then, oh, got to add. He, this he, is my Eiffel Tower made of bones. <laughs> Uh, well, getting back to the Freudian elements here, but yeah, uh, they, they wanted to have a restaurant, by the way, right at the tip. Um, one more. Uh, this is good. So an inventor wanted to design a tower that would be 4,000 feet tall. Remember our Burj Khalifas again, so this is still taller than the tallest building in the world today. Uh, and at the top, there's a car that seats 200 people. You get into the car. It's like a train car. And this car would be attached to the top of the tower by a 2,000-foot-long rubber cable. Can you see where we're going with this? The design proposal specifies best rubber... You know, good. So, none good. of that cheapo rubber for this. And then they push you off the top of the tower and you bungee until you come to a halt. But but you're in a train car. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one would hope that the rubber is sufficiently elastic. I mean, if it yeah. doesn't stretch enough, you basically you have a car full of soup at the but end. Yeah, what, right. Like they open the doors at the bottom and everybody just spills out. Uh -huh. This just makes me think of uh, various like kaiju movies where the, the monster picks up a train car and just uh -huh. shakes it until everybody's presumably liquefied inside. Like right. that, would just, that would just have to be the result of this horrific design. Yeah, it's a shame they didn't build it. I don't yeah. know. Uh, then we get to the very last uh, alternate proposal. My favorite one for lovers of Abraham Lincoln, of the log cabin lore, you've got the log tower. Uh, basically, Eiffel Tower ripoff, except 500 feet taller, entirely made of logs. <laughs> Instead of iron, just logs. And at the top, there is a log cabin where you can get some drinks and refreshment and, I don't know, maybe get yeah, cholera. Yeah, hell of a campfire with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we were talking earlier how this would this could have been like the first Burning Man. Yeah, yeah, really, exactly. Uh, gone for it. East oh, Chicago, there. you missed out. 
all the people who misbehave. The fair had its own police force, by the way, so you should think about that. The fair basically had a private army. Okay. And so for all the people who misbehave at the fair, they could just put them at the top of the log tower and then <laughs> wicker man it up at the end of the day. <laughs> So, so none of these ideas are really getting it. No, know, they're, they're sort of, we might call it junk. Um, so Daniel Burnham's not happy. The Chicago Fair needs a colossus. It's something that's got to be this distinctive physical feature that's going to inspire wonder, not hilarity or terror. Um, and he was bored with towers. So enter a young engineer from Pittsburgh who's the proprietor of a steel inspecting company. And he'd been sitting in on a meeting of engineers that Burnham was heading up. Burnham's standing at the top of the room yelling at everybody, you idiots, why you can't, why can't you come up with something good? And, uh, Ferris, this guy, his name is George Ferris. And he's sitting in the room and he's thinking, you know, we are idiots, but I've got an idea. And this is how we got the world's first Ferris wheel. <laughs> So essentially, he was like, "Well, let's let's do an Eiffel Tower, but let's make an Eiffel Tower that that moves. It's alive, right? Perfect. It, yes, it's like a walking Eiffel Tower. They're like, you build a giant iron tower. I'll make one that rolls around the place. You can get in it. And it's like it'll take you up there. Statue of Liberty and Ghostbusters too. Like just oh like, man. Uh, I don't know what music played at the first Ferris wheel. I'd love to know if it was like that, that happy beat that makes Bobby the Brown, statue sure. dance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Ferris wheel is kind of mundane to us, right? You get in, you go up to the top, you spit on your friends. Um, but you have to, you have to put yourself in the mindset of an 1893 farmer showing up to the fair and seeing this giant revolving wheel. I mean, this thing is huge, probably bigger than the standard wheels you would have gotten in today, Ferris wheels. Uh, it, I have to think of it as something like a steampunk creation. It's like something you'd see in one of the Bioshock games. Uh, but there's to, like, not like libertarian monsters on it that are injecting themselves with uh, with Adam? Well, there may have been. Oh. Okay, so, so secret history. He, here's how to picture it. Instead, It didn't have benches. You know, you've been on the ones that have benches. It's like a two-person bench. You go up around. No, no, no. That That's, that's small junk. Okay. This, uh, you have to imagine this giant spindly steel wheel carrying 36 individual train cars. 264 feet up into the sky and back. And it's usually reported that each of the 36 cars held 40 passengers, but actually that's, uh, I, I read this book by Stanley Applebaum, the, the 40 passenger load is just for who could sit in the plush chairs. Uh, the, it could hold 60 passengers in each car overall. So that's a capacity of 2,160 passengers on this Ferris wheel, which is more than the number of passengers who died in the sinking of the Titanic and getting close to the full capacity of the Titanic. So this is, this is a rolling, spindly, Titanic wheel spider at the fair. The axle shaft alone is 45 feet long, weighed 46 tons. At the time, it was believed to be the biggest piece of steel ever forged in America up to that time. Um, and so the Ferris wheel wasn't finished until about six weeks after the fair opened, but it ended up being arguably one of the most successful aspects of the World's Fair, probably the most successful aspect, if you don't count uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, 
which I think is worth a mention. Buffalo Bill, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody, he wanted to run his Wild West show inside the fair. Uh, they wouldn't give him a pass, citing incongruity, which to me reads as tackiness. Um, but So he was like, okay, you won't let me in the fair? Well, he bought a parcel of land right outside the gate of the fair and caught people on the way in. A lot of people went to the Wild West show thinking it was the fair. Uh, and he made a killing. They were like, where's the wheel? Yeah. <laughs> It's this lasso, son. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this World's Fair has a lot of shooting. Oh, I didn't expect. <laughs> it's uh, so much more exciting. It's like a Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the Ferris wheel opens June 21st, 1893, more than a month and a half after the fair began. And it, it, it was generally considered safe. The authorities said it was safe. The steel inspectors said it was fa- uh, safe. But people looked at it and thought, that doesn't look right. It... <laughs> It looks too frail. It, uh, it, there's a nice mismatch between how physics really works and our intuitive grasp of it, of it because you, you looked at it and people just thought, that thing looks like it's going to collapse. And a oh, wonderful story to go along with this. When they first ran it for, for a test run for the press, people got into these cars and they, they, the, the wheel starts to move for the first time. The engines are turning it and they start going up to the top and people start hearing hail on the roof of their car going to the top of the Ferris wheel. They're like, what is it, hailing outside? No, it was nuts and bolts raining down on the roof of the Ferris wheel car. Good well, sign. Th- this ties into, to, I think, the, the way I always feel when I get on a, on a Ferris wheel. Is that I'm, I'm not concerned. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little terrified. <laughs> but it's not because of this like, epic construction. It's about the people that, that put it together. Like, yeah. I'm trying to imagine, like... Did, did they take like a sleazy carny? Yeah, just kind of <laughs> like just throwing the, the yeah. instructions aside. Uh, the Allen like, wrench doesn't fit. Whatever, we yeah, don't need that one. Enough. I'll yeah. just get it in with my finger, and then <laughs> and then it's just going to fall apart while I'm up there. So the question is, would the wheel hold up? And we actually got a pretty strong test of that. On Sunday, July 9th, the Ferris wheel was having a huge day. People were climbing in. By the way, I, I read this one great account uh, from a guy named Rice, Luther Rice, who sent a telegram when they first opened the fair saying, we need extra guards to keep people from, like, mobbing into this thing. Can you imagine that? So it's like, I have a new invention that will carry you hundreds of feet into the sky, and you're, like, mobbing to get inside when people are telling you not to. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so, so you've got the, all these people, more than a thousand passengers in this walking Eiffel Tower, this rolling Titanic. And sometime in the afternoon of uh, Sunday, July 9th, you start to feel the pressure dropping. And the sky turns a little dark. And the clouds roll in. And then you spot it, a funnel cloud coming straight at you. And you are in the Ferris wheel at the top. <laughs> Uh, okay. It moves pretty slow, we should mention. So if you're at the top, you're, it's going to be a while before you can get out. And the wheel's continuing to turn. And you, there's another fact that you told me. They put mesh over the windows so people yeah. wouldn't jump out, right? Yeah, they, they were afraid people would be, like, panicking and trying to jump out the windows, which ties into something I'll get to in just a second. Uh, so they had to, like, have this grate over all the windows to be like, no suicides now. Um <laughs> So there's a funnel cloud heading for the Ferris wheel, and people are in it. Uh, there, there was actually an engineer who was aboard the Ferris wheel who wrote to the journal Engineering News, uh, who said that you know people started to panic, and it took two people to brace the doors shut as the winds picked up. But then ultimately, uh, he, uh, this engineer writing in, let's see, I'm trying to find this. Well, anyway, said that all that people felt in the end was a small vibration. 
and it blew the the wheel maybe an inch, inch and a half to the side. So, uh, but they did get treated to the image of a nearby hydrogen balloon floating out over the lake, which was completely obliterated by the storm. Uh, and so imagine? this should be this should yeah. be a testament to what an amazing feat of steampunk engineering this wheel was. It totally defied common sense, and yet it withstood this powerful storm. Yeah, that's amazing. One last story on this. Uh, there, there was a great story about uh, a time when a man got in the Ferris wheel. They were taking him up to the top, and he starts panicking. He's like, I got to get out. I don't know if the logic works on that, because you're getting to the top, you're panicking, you're like, getting out doesn't really help you. Um, but, you know, I he was panicking. He curl into a ball <laughs> at the bottom of it. <laughs> he wasn't being rational, so he's like, I got to get out. And he's trying to open the doors and jump out, and nobody could, people were trying to restrain him. They couldn't stop him. And it finally was one passenger on the car with him uh, who was resourceful enough to figure out how to stop him. It was a woman who removed her skirt and threw it over his head and hooded him like a horse, you know, <laughs> like when you put blinders on a horse. Uh, and that calmed him down. He couldn't see anymore, and he made it back down to the bottom. I'm okay. But but the Ferris wheel worked, never collapsed, never turned over, made it to the end of the fair, and it was a big success. So that's one way to calm a madman at the fair. But uh, but now Christian's going to talk about another madman that was uh, that was in play in 1893 Yeah, in unfortunately, as far as I know, no one threw a skirt over this guy's head. Uh, I imagine many of you are familiar with H.H. H. Holmes. The first American serial killer, or at least recorded, as Robert likes to say, is the first one that got caught. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we have some murder fans in the audience. Yeah. But. So, also, disclaimer, if there's any children here, this is about to get a little graphic. Uh, so, I asked you earlier, how many of you are from out of town? I imagine you're staying in hotels, right? What if you went back to your hotel room tonight? And the door locks behind you. And you go to sleep. And the room fills with gas while you're asleep and asphyxiates you to death. And then the, ho- the hotel owner comes in, he takes your body, and he drops it down a chute into the basement and dumps it into a vat of acid. Then he sells your skeleton to a local medical school. That's what was going on with H.H. H. Holmes, purportedly. Now, wait, Christian, did you ask what if that happened? Like, what yeah. would our what reaction would you do? be? I'd be very pissed. Yeah. Be very What's pissed. Your, you, you better think One about this before you go to bed tonight. <laughs> Uh, I've been thinking about it in our hotel. Our hotel's a little creepy. Um, <laughs> it's got these, like, well, well, we'll tell you guys yeah, later. Yeah. Well, uh, um, catch us afterwards. Yeah. Uh, but so this is going to be a brief look into the science behind H.H. H. Holmes' murder castle. Uh, at least six people were killed there, maybe more during the World Fair. The Devil in the White City is going to be a big source for us here, but actually there is this fantastic ebook that a mysterious Chicago put out that is called The Murder Castle of H.H. H. Holmes, the expanded edition, uh, by Adam Seltzer. And it was incredibly helpful because he pulled together all these primary resources from the time about what was actually going on. Uh, so I'm going to do a brief intro on H.H. H. Holmes for those of you who aren't familiar, but really we're not going to have the time to go into all of his exploits. Uh, but mainly we're going to talk about how he designed this murder castle from the ground up specifically to dispose of victims with science. Uh, in fact, one of the inve- investigators involved in this case 
refer to Holmes as a scientific criminal, and he said he would never think of engaging in a burglary or shooting a person in cold blood. So there's that, you know. I think that's interesting to, to think about this being the age of a scientific criminal because right right around the same time as when we got the Jack the Ripper killings. Yeah, and in now, fact, a lot of people were speculating that they were the same person. And this uh, might be for the scientific aspects. I mean, Holmes himself was a physician. He was, He yeah, was a he, doctor. He had and, a degree in surgery, and he operated as a pharmacist. Uh, so his actual name was Herman Webster Mudgett. So you can <laughs> see why he changed it to H.H. Holmes. Henry Howard. Uh, he, like I said, he was trained as a surgeon. He changed his name when he moved to Chicago, uh, and he operated as a totally legitimate pharmacist here in town. Uh, now, the question is usually, how many people did this guy kill? This is all during the World's Fair. Supposedly, he killed visitors who rented rooms in this hotel of his, and they were especially plentiful as people were coming into town. There are like varied numbers. Some people say it's up to 200 people, but that estimate doesn't really seem to have any hard evidence to back it up. More likely, they're tall tales that are just springing out of something that's already a grisly situation. He admitted, however, to killing 27 people, but the confession is totally dubious because some of the people he admitted to kidding, killing came forward and were like, what? No, I'm, yeah. I, I'm alive. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I confused you with that other person. I killed. <laughs> that other person I killed. Uh, but then on the on the gallows, right before they hung him, he said, no, I only killed two people. So it's all over the place. What we th- But we think, know he killed more than two, Yeah, right? definitely. At least in the murder castle, five to six people were killed, if not more. Uh, and he was eventually arrested in Boston for his crimes. He killed his accomplice and three of his children. It was this part of this insurance scam that went wrong. He was hung in 1896. This is something... Uh, he asked to have his body buried in 10 feet deep of concrete so nobody could uh, uh, get a hold of his body and put it on a dissection table. Huh. So, yeah, he's a real charmer. So you mentioned uh, his insurance scam. I, I think we got to mention this because this is one of the most fun things about Holmes, if anything is fun. Holmes was doing these insurance scams his whole life. What, what would you do if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I've got a great idea. I'm going to take out an insurance policy, a life insurance policy on you with me as the beneficiary. I'll give you a little bit of money, eh? (laughs) And uh, for a lot of the people who met Holmes were like, yes, okay, we'll do that. So this murder castle, it's in, or it was in Englewood, Illinois, just south of Chicago, on the corner of Wallace and 63rd Street. Apparently the construction of the building was finished in 1890. The blueprint plans for this building included 51 doorways that just opened up into brick walls and a hundred windowless rooms. So some people go, how do you build it? How do you build something like that, Christian? I want to build a murder castle. Yeah, it's like building a, a pyramid, right? I yeah. Mean- well, during construction, he made sure that no workmen stayed on the job for more than a week. And the way he did this was he would just claim all their work was second rate. And he refused to pay them. They'd walk off the job. They'd hire somebody else. So he was the only one who knew the exact layout of this building. It was three stories tall. It was one block long. He referred to it as the World's Fair Hotel. The idea was <laughs> the World's Fair was going to be coming to town. He would use it not you know not publicly to murder people people would rent <laughs> yeah. rent rooms there it was kind of like an airbnb uh 
And it wasn't really a hotel in the modern sense either. There wasn't like a front desk or anything like that. It was mainly like long-term rentals. Um, so here's some features of this building. It had trap doors, secret compartments, and hidden stairways. The halls were designed like mazes. Some of the stairs led to nowhere, which is what our hotel that we're <laughs> staying in has in common. Uh, the upper floor rooms were soundproofed and airtight, and they were sealed and lined with asbestos. And they were hooked up to these gas lines so he could pump in gas and either asphyxiate people or some people speculate that he burned people to death in there, like he would roast them. The evidence on that's a little weird, but there were like gas valves on the other sides of these walls. So it's like a late uh, 70s Dungeons and Dragons module. Yeah, yeah. That elaborate. <laughs> yeah, if only he had just played Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> I think we could have saved a lot of lives. A good outlet, yeah. yeah. You, you could also look at it as like a Winchester mystery house that kills yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Very much. Yeah, so there were 71 guest bedrooms. He had some of them rigged up so they had alarms so he would know if the occupant was trying to escape, um, and some of the some of the reporters who investigated this case, they like gave the rooms these fancy names. These weren't like Holmes names for them: the Black Closet, the Room of the Three Corpses, and the Hanging Secret Chamber. That's the room I'm staying. <laughs> um, but they were all just made up. You know, they weren't even by people who worked in Chicago. This is like newspapers in New York. They would get a hold of diagrams and they'd go, "Oh, cool, we got to come up with fun names for these." Well, and that's something to keep in mind through all of this, right? Because it's not just what happened, but it's what people are layering over what happened. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So his bathroom, his personal bathroom, had a trap door in it that led to a hidden stairwell down to a windowless cubicle between the floors. And then from here, there was a chute that dropped to the cellar, and it wasn't just like a fun slide. It was, <laughs> you know, for purposes. And he also had uh, an exit, so he could basically like get away if something was going on just right out onto the street. Next to his office, there was a vault, and when they investigated the vault, the impression of a a woman's footprint was found on the inside of the door, and it was described as being big enough only for a person to stand in. So how does he get rid of all these bodies? Well, this is where the basement comes in. That chute I mentioned goes straight down to the basement, and here's some fun things that were supposedly in the basement. Uh, vats of acid, quicklime pits, and there was a furnace in his office on the upper floors. Uh, most people have furnaces in their office. Uh, and uh, in the basement, there was also supposedly a dissecting table, his surgeon tools. It was also rumored that uh, there were these like apparatuses that looked like medieval torture devices everywhere, but their purpose was never explained. A lot of this is really alleged, especially like when you read that Seltzer book, because the police at the time that were investigating and the journalists who were reporting on it were really like kind of hysterical about the whole thing, and it uh, took on some hyperbole. Yeah, we got to sell some newspapers, folks. <laughs> so, what's the best way to get rid of body? How do you guys get rid of bodies? Oh, uh, quicklime? Quicklime is is one way, but in a lot of people, you know, if you've read detective stories, you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard about alligators. quicklime method. Oh, if well, that's a good Alligators one. in the murder basement. A uh, pit of crabs. Yeah, those would be great, too. Yeah. I just don't think he had those as options. Yeah. But there were supposedly these quicklime pits. Now, what's quicklime? We hear that and we go, oh, yeah, sure, that's a way to get rid of a body. Quicklime is this chemical compound known as calcium oxide. 
It's made through the thermal decomposition of limestone. Uh, and it basically, it's anything that contains calcium carbonate. If you heat it up to a high temperature, it reacts. Uh, and uh, it reacts to CO2 specifically so it can create heat energy and light. They used to actually use it for fireworks. That's what limelight is. Uh, so in 2012, Crazy. this fun group of researchers got together and they said, let's see how well quicklime gets rid of a body. And they took <laughs> six dead pigs and they buried them in pits of quicklime. Was this in Chicago? No, it was in Europe, actually. Oh, okay. uh, and they, they found that when they recovered these pig bodies six months later, instead of disposing of the bodies, the quicklime actually delayed the decay of the carcasses. So it's better not to dispose of a body or destroy it, but it, it, it was really used to keep putrefaction at bay uh, so that animals wouldn't be attracted to bodies, and it was historically used in plague burials. So m maybe it wasn't quicklime he had in his basement. Maybe it was lye. Ah, now, in the past, Robert and I did an episode about Hollywood acid dissolving uh, people, and one of the things we came to in that episode was about how, you know, if you if you want to dissolve a body, it might be better to use a strong base rather than yeah. a strong acid. Yeah, lye is sodium hydroxide, and, you know, purportedly drug cartel assassins use it to dispose of bodies in several outer hours. Um, in Chicago, actually, is the first instance of somebody uh, being recorded as using it to dispose of a body. A guy by the name of Adolf Lutgert dumped his wife into a boiling vat of lye in 1897 and they burned what was left, but the police found the bone fragments. Uh, and a key component here seems to be water. So you have to add water to lye to make it really work pretty well. So maybe Holmes had these pits, he put lye in them. Lye is really easy to get a hold of and he filled them up with water. We don't know. Uh, then there's supposedly this acid, right? How does that work? Well, a lot of you are probably thinking about Breaking Bad right now. Uh, we don't know what kind of acid he had, but typically acid dissolves a body more completely than lye, but it takes way longer. And it, the fumes are also supposed to be intolerable. They're really toxic. Uh, so it's easier to get lye. It's safer to use lye. I mean, it's not safe. It's like you think of Fight Club when they're like putting the stuff on their hands and burning their hands. That's basically lye. Uh, but acids are also monitored for bomb making nowadays. So it's not that easy to use. But if you're thinking Breaking Bad, they used hydrofluoric acid in that. And it takes silicon oxide and types of glass and metals and plastic and just rips through them. That's why you've got that infamous tub scene. Another thing they found in the basement. Yeah. A wooden tank filled with strange chemicals. And uh, workmen later excavating it, they, uh, they lit a match to see what was in there, and they accidentally, <laughs> accidentally ignited it. 1890s uh, investigation techniques, y'all. Yeah. Or yeah. if we set it on fire, we'll see. They never quite figured out what was in there, but they think it might have been like a combination of crude petroleum and gasoline or benzene, and that might have been what was in the vault with one of his potential victims. So he locked her in there, placed some of the substance in there, it suffocated her, and then the residue was left behind from her footprint on the door. Uh, and there's another question, this furnace. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he's got this furnace in his office. Now, the police at the time said, oh, yeah, we found a human rib and a hank of long hair in the furnace. Oh, but then, hank. like, a couple years later, they were like, oh, actually, it was some stove lining. <laughs> uh <laughs> 
So, so it was actually pointed out in the papers at the time to destroy a human torso like that in this furnace would have been totally impossible. Hmm. To cremate a body now, I mean, you need a, a furnace that can burn at 1400 to 1800 degrees, and it still takes two to three hours to burn a body at that level. And the first modern cremation chamber wasn't presented until 1873 in France, and then 1876 here in the U.S. So yeah, that was before Holmes was active, but it's not likely that he had one of these furnaces in his office. So, the way the story ends of the old Murdo Castle <laughs> is it gets set on fire a bunch of times. Uh, Holmes himself sets on fire in 1893. Then he gets arrested uh, four more times, 1894, 1895, 1903, and 1907. It is finally officially torn down in 1938. Uh, the story goes, a post office currently occupies the plot. Anybody here from town been to this post office? Yeah? Oh. Yeah. 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 I, I hear there Any are like, lingering smells? There's like ghost tours. <laughs> uh, Don't go in the basement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I was reading that you can still access Holmes' basement. Oh, you have to you mail yourself? Exactly. You crawl out yeah, and, and they just dump you down the chute. The chute's right. still there. Um, Here's the creepy thing, and this is what I'll leave you with. What most people who write about H.H. H. Holmes don't know or fail to mention is that he actually owned several other properties around town, <laughs> and those weren't investigated as much as the murder castle. So if he had any associates in the area, they totally could have gone in and cleaned up the evidence while everybody was looking at this murder castle. Uh, and specifically, he had a glass-bending factory that was in an isolated area, and when the police got there, all they found were junk, except there was a diagram showing that a massive furnace had recently been removed from there. Hmm. So mm. maybe there's more victims. What kind of names would they have given these other places? Like Murder Hut? Because you can't, it can't all be Murder <laughs> Castle. Right, yeah. It, uh, murder Factory, Murder... Ooh, the Murder Pad. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the science of the weird white city of Chicago. Yeah, what I love about this is that all these examples we looked at, you can see just these, like these burning stars, just gathering mass based on all of uh, all of what's going on in, in the culture, all the the momentum of, of the century. Uh, in the case, like Holmes is kind of like the dark angel of the the festivities, and then we have the the mechanical god, and then we have people trying to figure out how we all get along while talking about other gods as well. It's really yeah. kind of the birth of the 20th century. Yeah. You know, you've got like industrialism psychopaths, and uh, religious infighting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. Uh, once uh, again, we're stuff to blow your mind. Uh, I'm Robert. I'm, I'm Joe. Christian. Oh, you go first. I'm America Christian Borg. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and I'm Joe McCormick. Again, you can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We're Blow the Mind on most social media. I think they're probably going to kick everybody out of here, but we'll hang around out, out here if anyone wants to come chat with us. Uh, you know, uh, I've got nowhere to go. Thanks, everybody. All right, so there you have it, a little Stuff to Blow Your Mind live. And, uh, hey, if you really enjoyed this and, you, and you're thinking to yourself, I would love a, the, the opportunity to see Stuff to Blow Your Mind perform live, well, then don't fret. We're uh, working on putting together some more of these in the future, and we will keep you updated about those uh, opportunities at all of our social media accounts. Our main ones, of course, are on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Instagram. We are Blow the Mind on all of those. And, of course, our mothership, our main website is Stuff to Blow Your Mind. 
Mastermind.com. And in the meantime, if you want to reach out to us with your uh, you know, f- feedback on the topics we discuss here or the live episode, you can email us the old-fashioned way at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.